Hey guys, welcome to our Sermon of the Week podcast. Today's message is from our guest speaker. If you're interested in partnering with us, check out our app or our website for ways to give. I had the privilege of going to Namibia. I wish you could all have climbed on the plane with me. There were lots of things that got done of which I will not tell you. But two of the things that I felt God really intervened in a special way that I would like to tell you about. I'd like to draw in your mind a picture quickly of two conversations. One, a man who's been a longtime friend for many, many years. A man who's been significantly involved in the pastor's book set, not as a pastor, but as an equipper. And uh, we were across a breakfast table for one another, and he began, and it took him three hours to describe the absolute heartbreak he felt in the unfaithfulness of his wife to their marriage. He wasn't embittered. He wasn't angry. He wasn't vindictive, but he was definitely saddened. And he told me the pain that he felt the comments that people had made to him, some very unhelpful. And my mind was just blank. I had nothing to say to my friend. And as I prayed for wisdom, Lord, (laughs) what do you say? And so as he continued to talking, he eventually, after nearly three hours, ground to a halt. And I said, I'm not here to support your wife and what she's done. I'm not here to pat you on the back and say everything's gonna be okay. But I want to leave you with two questions for you to answer. I don't need to hear an answer. I said, one, have you loved your wife like Jesus loves the church? And if you haven't, It's time to start. And then the second thing I said was, Lord, please give this man wisdom. What is the best thing for your 15-year-old son? Should you walk away from your marriage? He looked at me like a deer in headlights. His eyes glassed over. And the best he could come up with was, I really needed to hear that. Those are the moments you're humbled. You're just brought to the end of yourself. You know God has met you. You just rest in knowing that what he wanted said was said. Another conversation, also over a meal, incidentally, a man who for 10 years has been the leader of a national denomination. Thousands of people have looked to him for comfort, for instruction, for direction, for leadership. And this man just blew it. This man committed adultery and now has a child out of wedlock. Also, he had no excuses. He had no attempt to cover his tracks. He wasn't trying to explain away what he had done. He was just broken, and he knew it. And then he began detailing for me the additional pain he felt with the rejection of others around him, not knowing what to say to him. 
Unfortunately, our time was abruptly brought to an end, and I had to send him an audio message on WhatsApp. And I basically said this to him, listen, I hurt for you. I wish I knew what to say. I wish I had been there for you in a better way. But I said, I do know one thing to be true. When you were ushered into leadership, it was based on your credibility, your education, what people thought of you. And I said, all of those things are null and void. You have discredited yourself. And everybody knows it. But I said, I see in you a humility. I see in you a desire to walk with God as never before. And I said, if you're faithful to that, you will rebuild your credibility and be a better leader than you ever were. He then responded to my audio with another audio, and he, you could hear the thing go on, and then he wept. For over a minute, he just cried. He didn't know what to say. And then he finally managed, thank you. Those are times, again, that you're humbled. You feel like you had nothing to say, nothing to fix what was broken. And yet, God in his goodness intervened. We're celebrating Memorial Day weekend. Not a real fun thing to celebrate necessarily. Death is not something we want to visit. It's not something that brings comfort to our soul. We in the church, we've been talking about the ecclesia. We look to the church to help us live better. But that's not what the world, the people outside the church, look at the church for. They are deceived enough to think they know what's best for their life. And so they make their decisions accordingly. But there's one time in which many people in our culture look to the church as never before. And that's at the time of death. There's nothing like a coffin to put you on a quest for hope. There's nothing that brings you to the end of yourself than when you stare death in the face. And people outside the church look to us, the church, and they come knocking and they want the holy man, the perceived person who has the answers, to give them some sense of hope, order, and chaos. Now, you're a Christian. You've been going to Providence. Are you equipped to deal with death? Do you know what to say? Do you know how to comfort? We Christians are as ill-equipped as the rest of the world. But should we be? The Bible is full of things to help us. Middle of May, our hearts were saddened. Nearly, well, 10, 11 people slaughtered at the hands of a young man in Buffalo. Our hearts grieve for those people. What answers can we offer them? This week, Tuesday, another shooter, 17 people crossed the door of death. Seems so senseless. How do you deal with that? What is our response as a believer 
to a world that looks to the church in death as never before, what answers do we give? Death is an uncomfortable issue to talk about. Maybe because we know so little about it. Maybe because it happens so unexpectedly. Maybe because it seems so terminal, so final. Yet the Bible, I'm glad to say, has a bunch to say about it. When you enter a marathon, you don't run for the start. You don't just run for the run. You run for the end. What do you live for? Do you live for your death? You should. That's the finish line. That's the tape. How will you get there? How will you equip the people around you to get there? You live best. You run best in the light of the tape. You live best in the light of your death. Don't push it off. Don't put your head in the sand. Genesis 2. There's an intersection of words, some that we like and some that we don't. Let me draw your attention to verse 7 of Genesis 2. The Lord formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now that's nice. And man became a living being. Okay, we're still on a good one here. The Lord planted a garden. Yeah, we just sang from graves to gardens. God planted a garden towards the east in Eden. Down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden. Okay, so far so good. To cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. What do we stand for in our culture if it's not freedom? What do we celebrate today other than freedom? So he says, eat freely, but freely comes with the cost. Free isn't really free. Somebody paid for it. We all want freedom. We don't want to pay the cost of it. From any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. Now notice the intersection. Life, freedom, but now comes the part we don't like. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. That's not fun. So here we are. The second chapter of scripture. God introduces life, death, and freedom. You know, you think in your culture, freedom is I get to choose what I want. No. Let me redefine freedom. Freedom is you get to choose to what you submit. And we don't like submit. That's your choice. To what do you submit? Yourself or God? The sad part of this story is Adam did eat of that forbidden fruit. He disobeyed God. But because he represented all of humanity, all of us followed. And sin leads to 
death. Paul wrote, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. And that's generic. That's women too. Because all sinned. Just like sin passed from person to person down the line of humanity, so too death passed along with that sin. Eventually, Joshua and David, at the end of their life, this is what they said. I am going the way of all the earth. And so are you. And so am I. You have to face the tape. What's your finish line going to be like? This is the fact of all the earth. We all have sinned and so we all must die. Our culture, our generation offers us no favor in preparing us for death. It's a sad fact. We're all on death row. This is horrible. It's an unchanging reality. There's no pushing it off. We must face it. The wisest of all men, Solomon said this, no man has authority to restrain the wind with wind or authority over the day of his death. You can't circumvent it. You can't walk around. Death is unwelcome. It's unwanted. It's an uninvited guest. It stalks the young, the old, the strong, the weak, the nobody, the somebody. We are not immune. It will come knocking. We must face our maker, the reality of death and how it lurks unsuspected in shadows, claiming it's a victim one by one. Times, it comes in a way we so dislike. Nearly 200 years ago, a poet you may remember from fifth grade English lit or American lit class, Edgar Allan Poe wrote this, rapping, tapping, and so faintly you come tapping, tapping at my chamber door that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door, darkness there and nothing more. Deep into the darkness peering, long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, rapping, tapping at my chamber door. Doesn't that send shivers up your neck? We must face death. From the second chapter of Scripture, all the way through, almost every page of Scripture alludes to the tape. All the way up until the next to the last chapter of the scripture that mentions death for the last time. And it says this, lest you think I'm only morbid, lest you think this is all gloom and doom, this is what ends the scriptures when it talks about death. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell with him, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. What hope, what victory is ours despite the chains of death that lurk around us? You know, some of us may look negatively at God as the author of death. We may even perceive him as this all-powerful, bloodthirsty masochist, just itching for some more blood. No. Maybe a precursor reading through the Old Testament may give you that impression. But that's not the way it is over and over and over again. God pleads for life. He says this through the prophet Ezekiel, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. And he says a little bit later, same book, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Paul says, sorry, Isaiah said this, at some point in the future, he says, he, referring to God, will swallow up death for all time and the Lord God will wipe away the tears off our faces. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Jesus is gonna walk right into the jaws of death and pull out the stinger. In the Old Testament, when we read through the Old Testament, there's the country of Egypt, of which we all know. And we all know that Egypt is most famous, most visited, most explored, most studied because of death. It is the place of the dying. For thousands of years, Egyptians sought ways to somehow pre preserve the mummies of their dead, hoping to add maybe to the afterlife. Periods, pyramids were built, tombs were dug, thousands of years of experience burying dead bodies. In fact, we can go visit these mummified remains, thousands of years old, in coffins. They could prolong the body's and stop it from decay, but they couldn't stop death. We must face the tape. Jesus is a picture of the world, and God in his wisdom took his people out of Egypt, the place of death, to the promised land, the place where they could enjoy life. Are you his people? God wants you to get out of Egypt. He will come to take you to where he is.
He said to his disciples one day when they were troubled, when they were afraid, when he had been talking to them about his own death, he says, do not be troubled. Do not be afraid. Behold, there's many places in my father's house and I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am there you may be also. What hope in the midst of death? Over and over again, all through scripture, God pleads with us for life. He's not going to pull the wool over our eyes. He does say, for the wages of sin is death. But he doesn't stop there. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Peter says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You know, Adam sinned. He enslaved himself and all of the rest of us under this thing called the law of sin and death. But Paul says this, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. There's hope to be had. What is death anyways? To understand death, we must understand life. Both death and life have two parts. And they're intertwined. They're interconnected. So we ask now for a sound mind. That was the last song we sang. Please, don't lose me here. Engage. Sound mind. Both life and death have two parts. Life has a physical, visible dimension and a spiritual, invisible dimension. Both life and death. I believe all of us sitting here are alive physically. When you walked in, when you're looking at me, you're manifesting life to me. Physical life. Some of us are manifesting spiritual life and some of us are not. Death also has two parts. There is a visible physical death and there is a invisible spiritual death. Now, none of us sitting here are physically dead, but some of us are spiritually dead. Some of us are alive physically and alive spiritually. So here's our four options. We can be physically alive and you got it, spiritually dead. And some of you fit that category. If you haven't accepted Jesus as your personal savior, if your eternity is not set on the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's something you must do. So we can be physically alive and spiritually alive. We can also be physically dead, sorry, physically alive and not spiritually alive. Now, all of us fit those two options. We're alive physically. Some of us are alive spiritually. Some are not alive spiritually. Here's the other two options you haven't crossed yet. You can be physically dead and also spiritually dead. And I hope for your sake, 
you'll never cross both of those. But there's another option. You can be physically dead, but spiritually alive. We have a physical part, which is our visible part. We have a spiritual part, which is our invisible part. Death relates to both of those parts that make our makeup up. God told Adam that on the day he ate the fruit, on the day he disobeyed, he would surely die. Well, did he drop dead? You read the scriptures, he didn't. So how did he die? Well, that's because there's two aspects of death. There's a physical death, and he didn't die that day physically. There is a spiritual death, and he did die that day spiritually. And eventually, because he was dead spiritually, he needed God to do a work in him. There's something we need to understand about death right from the beginning. And there are two types of death. Some feel that death is annihilation. It's just a ceasing of existence. Gone? No. Physical death is not ceasing to exist. It's not annihilation. Death, if you forget everything that's been said today, just remember this. Death is separation. Death is separation. The first death, the first physical death, when you die physically, your body and your spirit are separated. Your body gets cremated or gets buried. That's what we do in our culture. And your spirit now, if you are a believer, goes into the presence of the Lord. And if you're not a believer, you now await judgment. For those of us who are believers in Christ, Paul said this, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or in the body, to be pleasing to him. Jesus turned to Martha on the day that Jesus wept for the first time. And he wept another time. But the first time we see Jesus weep, weep was at the death of his friend. And in the interchange, Martha was a little troubled that he had not come on time to save her brother. And he turns to her and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. What does he mean? He dies physically, but he lives spiritually. Jesus may not stop your physical death, but he is perfectly capable and willing to stop your spiritual death. Spiritual death, what is that? It's still separation, but it's not separation of the spirit, the invisible part with the physical part. That's physical death. Spiritual death is still separation. It's the separation of the spirit of the person with the God of heaven. It's still separation. 
The first one, incidentally, the separation of the body from the spirit is not permanent. The separation of the spirit from God is permanent. Revelation 20. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Okay, so they died. Their body and their spirit are separated. Now they're resurrected. The body and the spirit are reunited. And he's saying, blessed, blessed are those. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. What is the second death? The second death is the separation of the spirit from God. Revelation 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. The first death, separation of body from spirit. The second death, spiritual death, is separation of the spirit from God, and it's permanent. This is where the lake of fire comes in. This is where the grave does not lead to a garden. Someone once said, born twice, die once. Born once, die twice. What does that mean? When I am born twice, I am born physically through my mother's womb, and then I am born again into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, I will only die once, physically. When I am only born once from my mother's womb, and I am not born again by the Spirit of God, now I must die twice both physically, separation of spirit from the body, and spiritually, separation of the spirit from God. So what is the point of talking about death? Our purpose is to encourage one another, not to be morbid and gloom-filled. Our purpose is to know how to die well. We need to skip many things. <laughs> Crucifixion was the worst torture devised by man. Jesus, unfortunately, had to go through that torture. It was the most excruciating, most agony-filled form of execution ever devised by the human mind. In the midst of being crucified, literally nailed to a cross, Jesus said seven statements. Now, when you look at scripture, we have the privilege of seeing many godly people die. And out of all those people that died in the scripture, there are three funerals that we know a whole lot about. One was Jacob, one was King David, and one was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have time to talk about the other two, but I want to leave you with the Lord Jesus Christ. These simple statements. Why? Well, Jesus is our pattern. Jesus is the one we follow, and he died well. 
Jesus on the cross. The soldiers had just finished driving the nails into his hands and feet. He had been raised on the cross. Flies, birds had begun to gather at the smell and the sight of blood. At the foot of the cross, callous soldiers now were gambling, bargaining for the seamless cloth that was his clothing, not knowing that the one on the cross was dying to clothe them in righteousness if they so chose. On either side, two thieves condemned to die with the innocent one. This is what he said. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. How do you prepare to die? Follow Jesus. You have wronged many people through your life, and so have I. It is time to seek their forgiveness. That's the right way to die. Others have wronged you. They need your forgiveness. That is the right way to die. Settle the score. Settle the accounts. Seek out. Extend forgiveness. Request forgiveness. That's what Jesus did. He had nothing that he had wronged anybody for. But we certainly have. Be kind to one another, Paul says. Tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. That's the standard. The second thing he said on the cross, and he said this, truly I say to you, you shall be with me in paradise. What's that all about? On either side, there were two criminals. One was hollering insults at him, saying things like, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And the other one rebuked him and said, do you not even fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And then he turns to him and he says, remember me in paradise. You know, that word paradise used there is actually from another language and it, it's actually garden. It's actually garden. And it's used several times in scriptures to refer to heaven. And Jesus says this, after the man asked a question, he says, will you remember me? Jesus says, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Do you want to know how to die right? Have eternity in your heart. Bring as many cotton-picking people as you can to the cross. That's our purpose, keeping Paradise, keeping heaven and the promises of God. That's what we need to be all about. It needs to pour all out of us. And when you get squished and hit and pounded, that's what needs to come out. You know, we, we spew all kinds of pus when somebody hurts us. This is what ought to come out. John 19, at the foot of the cross are people hurling insults at Jesus, calling him all kinds of names. The soldiers, completely callous. They had seen this before. They had pounded nails into people's hands before. And then Jesus sees his mother, and he says this. He sees his mother, and he sees his disciple. And he says, woman, behold your son. 
Then he turned to the disciple, John, and he said, behold, your mother. Now, think of the immense focus of mind, blood dripping from seven points of your body, nails driven through your feet, a crown of thorns on your head, your back rubbing up and down against the splinters of that log, only being able to breathe when you pushed up on bent legs, pounded in with a nail. And he had the foresight to think of his mother. How do you die right? You care for those who are left behind. You're concerned for their welfare. You care for them even in your dying hour when all pain dictates otherwise. You stand in the gap for them. Now, I'm not talking about money and wills and trusts. I'm talking about your spiritual legacy to be concerned for them and for their care. Jesus had at least four half-brothers, and we don't know how many sisters. He didn't go to biology to care for his mother. He went to the church to care for his mother. You know, all of us are part of a biological family, aren't we? We all have a last name. It came from somewhere. But when it comes to Jesus here on the cross, he pushes biology aside and he starts a new family. Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. When you die, seven times in the Old Testament, when a significant person like Abraham and Jacob and David and Joshua died, you know what it says? They breathed their last and they were gathered to their people. Who are your people? And I'll tell you, it's not biologically. Who are your people? Who are your people? Who will you be gathered to when you die? Things you need to think about. And I hope, I hope these are your people. The body of Christ is your people. That you will be gathered to that beautiful gathering that will meet and praise God for eternity. That's what I'm hoping for you not biological family. Jesus started a new paradigm here. We are talking in Providence all the time about brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. What are we doing? It's a new paradigm that began at the cross. It's not a biological family. It's around the person of the cross. Oh boy, I wish I had more time. John 19, 28, Jesus suddenly out of the clear blue cries out, I am thirsty. You want to die right? Do you want to die right? Care for the needs of those around you. There isn't any one of us sitting here who doesn't stare human need in the face. What are you doing with it? You have older people in your presence, younger people in your presence, people in need. What are you doing when somebody says, I thirst? Just this past week, my dad fell, hit his noggin really bad, broke his arm. He's 95. And now he teeters and he totters and he needs help. Now, I had a conversation with a very beloved family friend and they were like, this is what they said. Dad, this is too much. 
You've got your own life to live. Put him in a nursing home. That's the humane thing to do. That's the advice of our culture. Is that what we, the people of God, should do? Well, maybe. If God leads you to it. But don't let putting a loved one in a nursing home absolve you of your need and desire to give to those who are thirsty. Don't walk away from your responsibility. There are human needs when somebody dies. How are you dealing with it? Our culture doesn't encourage us, but the church should. The ninth hour. Jesus was crucified at nine in the morning. Here he is now, three in the afternoon. And this is what he says. He cried out in a loud voice. Now, before I tell you and remind you what he said, there's been three hours of absolute, total darkness. Nobody could see anything. Out of that darkness comes this phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's at times of death that we ask questions. And the first question we always ask is what? Why? Now, we look at this question, we think, oh, wait a minute. It, is, this, is this Jesus asking for information? Is he somehow wanting God to explain himself? Is that what this is? Well, it's actually a whole lot of things. But what was happening here was Jesus became sin for you and I. God cannot look at sin. And so turned his back on his son and his son felt the absolute horrible abandonment of God the Father. You and I, we're afraid of bounced checks. We're afraid of running out of money. We're afraid of losing our job. That's what terrorizes us. Jesus wasn't afraid of armies or death or leprosy or any of those sorts of things that cause us fear and anxiety. His most terrifying fear was to be abandoned by his father, to have fellowship broken. What does the presence of God mean to you? You want to live right? You want to die right? Encourage people to focus on the presence of God. Figure out how to do that in your own life. Encourage others to do the same. Oh, how much I wish we had some time. Last one. Next to the last one. Sorry. Here he is. Soon after that, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. How he mustered the strength in the midst of all this, his pain. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Six days of creation. God looked over all that he had made and he said, it is very good. And then he rested. Here's Jesus on the cross. Six hours of pain and agony. And he rested. And then he finished off with this phrase. It is finished. And then he gave up his spirit. You know, we have fight in our culture. That's what's made us what we are. 
we are told, fight, don't ever give up. When you die, there is a submission to the timing and the sovereignty of God in your circumstances. Give it up. Die. Be at peace. Be at rest. Be willing to say, it is finished. Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I've run the race. It's finished. It's a complete submission to the authority of God. You know, every other religion says, do, 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 try this, do this, do this, do that. Christianity is the only one that says it's been done for you. It's finished. It's finished. Everything to satisfy God was finished on the cross. You can't do anything to make God love you more. It's finished. It's finished. Be blessed in the confidence of the grace given to you. It's finished. It's done. Live well. Die well. In the process of living well and dying well, I promise you, you push back any potential for regret. May God bless you. I'll see you on the other side. Die well, my friend. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If you'd like to partner with us, you have the opportunity to give online at providencecommunity.org.